Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from Pulse Academia and Industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. Hello and welcome to IEEE Robotics Podcast. Could you please introduce yourself? Um, I'm Ayana Howard, and I'm a professor and chair of School of Interactive Computing at Georgia Tech. Thank you for joining us, Professor Ayana. I would like to go back when you were a child. If you remember anything, fire or imagination about technology or robotics, do you have any memories about that, if you remember? Oh, of course. Uh, it was when I decided to be a roboticist, which mm-hmm. was in middle school. Um, so for those of you who know, in the U.S., uh, that would have been about 12 years old. Um, I was always into science fiction, science fantasy, robots, space. And what I wanted to do was build a bionic woman. Um, and the reason why I thought about that was because um, in the school, you had to talk about your future career. That's like the first time you had to do that, which was in middle school and trying to figure out what I wanted to do. That was one of my favorite shows that mm-hmm. I wanted to build a bionic woman, which of course ended up being robotics. But uh, that's kind of why and what interested me in robotics in the first place. Very interesting. So I would like to go, what's the first robot you built, if you remember, and what is the feeling you had at the first time? Yeah, so I will tell you, technically the first robot I built was in the ninth grade. Uh, but then it wasn't really what you would think of as robotics. What happened was um, I wanted to control, I wanted to create a robot. I didn't know what that was. Um, and so what I did was I hacked a remote control car. I figured out how to communicate to it through a modem and developed a little program that could send it a command. So think of it as teleoperation. So that was my mm-hmm. first quote unquote robot uh, in terms of the software. Yeah. The, the next robot that I built built was, uh, again, software-based. It was when I was an undergrad, and I had to program um, a manipulator device such that it would basically, uh, this was early contact-based planning. So how do you get a robot to um, map out the surface of an object without breaking or moving it? Mm-hmm. Um, and so this was early artificial intelligence, of course, didn't really understand that, but uh, was using computer vision to do that. Um, So most of the stuff has been software-based. Hardware-based was when I went to grad school. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So since you have a really overwhelming experience in robotics, I would like to ask you what are the most misconceptions you have witnessed in robotic or artificial intelligence field? Um, I think this is really, um, the answer is toward non-roboticists and the roboticists. So for non-roboticists, I, I think they somehow think it's magic. They typically see the finished product um, and they just think, oh my gosh, this is like amazing. Or they say, oh, this is crap because it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Right? And there's not an understanding that um, robotics just like with your computer system, I mean, how many times does your, your phone freeze, right? Like it might happen once a month. Uh, it's the same with robotics. With the technology, it works really well sometimes, and sometimes it has bugs. Um, but it's not magic. It's just hard work, and it took a lot of generations of 
going in, doing an iteration, fixing it to get to where you then see it. Um, and for roboticists, I think it's this aspect of um, understanding this concept of people. I think a lot of times as roboticists, we design cool gadgets and you know, I, I do this as well. It's like, oh, I would like to do this. And you design some software or some robotic system that does it. But a lot of times we fail to engage people early enough because people may not actually want what you invented. People may not be users of the way you design something. Um, and I think we sometimes fail at understanding our real target, which is mm -hmm. the, the people who are using the products, not necessarily ourselves. Yeah. So if I ask you what you think the most important question that should be considered while working in robotic research, and maybe not yet considered by our community, from your perspective? Um, just because we can, should we? Right? Mm -hmm. I think that's actually the most important question. Just because we can build something, just because we can do something in terms of technology, ask the question, should we? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So do you think, what do you think about biggest limitation for robotics and artificial intelligence field? What the biggest limitation do you think? Um, so I think the biggest limitation really is the ability to uh, test and iterate and learn in mm -hmm. real world environments. Um, because, again, it, it's hard. If I design something with the data that I have and I deploy it, it's, it's going to have errors, right? And so how do we deploy something but do it such that it's safe enough that it works, but it's also learning in real time? Um, and, and that's still a difficult problem to, to address um, in general. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm curious to ask you, what do you think and direction of research you think was promising, very promising, but maybe the community seems to disagree or doesn't give much attention to it at the moment? Um, I'm actually hopeful of seeing a lot of the mobile manipulation work starting to gain some traction. Um, so I would claim that mobility uh, alone is it's mature. I mean, there's still some unanswered questions, but mobility, it's, it's still a mature field. But when you add in the manipulation on top of that, uh, it's still a lot of hard problems. Um, and so I'm actually hopeful of some of the things that I'm seeing um, in this space of mobile manipulation. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. So for empirical result, because now we have, I think, issue about publications sometimes you have a, an outstanding theory, but and empirical improved something other else. Do you have any experience about something you thought would work very well, but empirical result improved otherwise? Um, <laughs> well, I would actually say a lot of the research that just works in simulation, yeah. very rarely, if at all, works when you put it on real hardware. Mm -hmm. um, and, and yet that, that's what we tend to do early on, just because if you break your hardware, I mean, that's kind of disastrous. Um, and so those who work in the hardware space, who, who really work in the hardware space, like actually deploy robots, understand that. Um, I wish more individuals who work in more of the simulation space would think about putting it on hardware but it's hard, right? And it's mm. not that you're going to get the publications out of it. It's not that you're going to get, you know, a systems paper is still very hard and difficult to publish. 
uh, because it's like, oh, well, you just put things together to get it to work. And unless you have gotten something to work, it's really difficult to understand that that's actually what society needs Mm -hmm. is that last integration, getting something out there with people working with them. Mm-hmm. I think it's very interesting because we already, I think, um, one of the pioneer in human-robot interaction. And I'm curious to ask you, since we have, uh, for example, Starsky company uh, falling back in February 2020 because of the expensive data collection and we don't have simulation that catch or maybe the gap between simulation and reality is not almost zero. So if you're working with human and you have to simulate robots, how we can um, short this gap, how we can match the reality and take into account human as a factor, since you highlighted most of research neglecting the factor, which is complex. Yeah, so, so this is hard. There, so, and this is because there is still a disconnect between what I would say academic research yeah. and um, company application-based research. So for example, if I think about a human-robot interaction paper, in order to prove anything, in order to prove some aspect of significance or even uh, disprove something, you basically have to hold most of your variables constant. But robots, in general, if you're deploying them in the field, you're going to have a lot of uncertainty. It's not going to work exactly, you know, A, B, C, one, two, three, exactly the same every single instance of time. Um, and so that becomes difficult because the, to prove something, you really do need to, you know, not necessarily all the way Wizard of Oz, but it can't be fully autonomous. But yet, in the real world, it should be fully autonomous, or at least to that point where it can deal with uncertainty. Um, and so that's a gap uh, mm. in general. I know in my group, what we tend to do is we'll um, write up, sometimes it gets accepted, sometimes not, we'll, we'll write up the uncertainties and when things don't work, and here it is, and you know when we held all things constant except this one variable, and then this is the reality. Um, and I encourage my students to do that because I think it's something that we don't do enough of. Mm-hmm. So I would like to ask you, how do you see the trade-off between the model you develop and the data you collect? How do you see this trade-off? Do you think we have to go farther as to the head from black box modeling for safe robotics? How how you would see that? Yeah, so it, it needs to be a combination. Um, mm-hmm. There is no way, and this is, I, I truly believe, there is no way that we can collect all the data that we need in order to represent the diversity of the world, diversity of experience, diversity of the actual day-to-day interactions you might have with the robot. There's just, it's not gonna happen. And so the model though has to not only reflect the data that you have, but it also has to try as much as possible to put in and model the uncertainty. Mm. And sometimes the uncertainty could be, look, I don't know. Like, I, okay, in this area, I have no idea what the uncertainty is, and so I'm just gonna assume that when I get a data from this category, it's just wrong. Mm-hmm. How do you then design your system such that it can deal with, with that as part of your model? Um, I, I think we are still learning in this space. I think we are still adapting. Uh, some researchers are, are looking at this of how do you design models that also model the uncertainty, given that you don't even know what the model of the uncertainty is. Uh, I think it's just continuing to push it forward while still collecting data, while still sharing data, uh, but realizing that you're never going to, at least not in the near term or even in the short term, long term, uh, collect 
the data that represents everything. Mm -hmm. So um, if I ask you what the current challenges you want to solve and maybe something you envision in the short term or longer term for your interest? Yeah, so um, my personal research interest is I want to, so I I work in this area of human-robot interaction, but I also work in the area of the intersection of trust and bias. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the things in that is I want to figure out how do you design robots um, when they're interacting that the robot is honest about what it knows. Like, you know, we we model our system and we know when, you know, we're 85% accurate, right? I mean, it's not perfect, but allowing the flexibility to have the robot disclose that in a way that you still maintain trust, but you kind of admit it's, it's just like, um, when you have, uh, I will say there are some instructors, for example, when they don't know something, they just make up something. Like I've been in classes like that when I was younger. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's others that say, look, I don't know, but you know what? I'm going to look that up and I will get back to you at the next class. A-, a lot of times people don't want to do that because it seems like they have a weakness. I think the better instructors are confident enough in themselves to do that. I think we should have robots the same, that they should be designed to be confident enough in themselves to say, look, I don't know that, or I'm about to tell you something that's going to be inaccurate, but trust me, I'm going to figure out and come back to you with the right answer later on. Mm -hmm. I think it's very interesting, but may I ask you if we develop a robot in, in our lab for academia or versus industry, what are the factors that make a robot trustworthy? You imagine, what's the factors? Yeah, so um, I think that they're the same thing. It's the same thing that can make artificial intelligence without the embodiment trustworthy. Um, I think it's this aspect of um, an AI system being fair and people understanding that its outputs are going to be as fair as possible. Uh, I think it's about having a robot being transparent. And the example I gave was an example of, of transparency, uh, saying I don't know when it doesn't know. Um, I also think that robots have to be, um, and I'll call it accountability, but people need to be able to poke at the software and poke at the reasoning and poke at the decision-making process. Um, instead of accountability, you can think about it, you know, related to explainable AI, but in the context of, of a robot system. Um, and then lastly, I, I truly believe in this whole ethical aspect of AI. And I also think that there is a correlation to ethical robotics uh, of when a robot does something, you know, should it even be in that space? Should uh, a robot make decisions in certain environments or not? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think when we establish this whole aspect of fairness, accountability, ethics, and transparency in robotics, I really believe that that's the point where a robot could be as trustworthy as, say, people are of others, of friends and colleagues. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. So that you, what you mean that... Maybe we have a competitiveness between human being and artificial intelligence or robot because, of course, bias is ingrained in human beings. So do you think that maybe we have robots that maybe have these qualities in the future that can be more fair than human being? That what you think or how you would see the cooperation? I, I, I actually think, so one of the things is um, there are some 
um, researchers that say, you know, why are we making robots more human or why are we making mm-hmm. robots, you know, act? But the, the, the fact is, is that people do this, right? Like people will, uh, when they interact with the system, they are already treating it in some very similar fashions as they would treat another human. Um, and so we can't get, away. so that's the, the fundamental nature of people. Mm-hmm. And so given that, how do you have robots uh, belong to that type of ecosystem that humans are going to be part of anyway. Um, And so I think in that regard, robots could, in theory, be fair if they're designed such, if they have, um, and again, we don't have uh, robots that are truly fair, just like we don't have AI systems that aren't biased. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I think because they truly don't have the lived experience that people do, that they could be designed to understand the pros and cons of making the decisions, whether they are having a biased outcome. So for with respect to say, you know, diagnosis in, in a medical application, I'm a robot surgeon or, or some aspect. Um, I think we can, we're not even close to that though. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not saying we're, we're there, we're so far from that, um, it's surprising, but I think we can get to that point if people are very conscious about designing the robots yeah. with this in mind. I think it is a really interesting point because you mentioned about designing a robot and when it comes to fairness, I think there's a difference between justice and equality. And I think you are one of advocates for that and it comes to intellectual inclusiveness as well. So how we can take into account different uh, scenarios for fairness. So if I ask you first, how we can make sure the design of robots for that scenario will be intellectually inclusive? How we can make sure this happen in our research? Um, so I think we can start with um, the things that are in our own power. Mm-hmm. So whether we're an academic or we're a research leader in our environment, being, I mean, being deliberative about who do you include in, in your research group, right? Not kind of saying, oh, it's going to be because, you know, I graduated from USC uh, with my PhD, and so I'm just going to accept, you know, students that are graduating from USC in my group. Uh, we have to basically be comfortable with saying, look, I haven't had a student from another institution um, before, so there's a USC UCLA, so I haven't had a student from UCLA, but you know mm-hmm. what? I'm going to deliberately choose someone that is part of my group that I have not yet interacted with before. Um, but we have to be okay with doing that which a lot of us aren't because it pulls us out of our comfort zone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've started a question from a student as well. He asks us how we can ensure diversity of approaches, get the exposure they deserve, and prevent an overinvestment in a limited set of techniques. Similarly, at academics tend to establish strong beliefs about other fields that come off as oft, often as organs and elitism as well. So the question is how we can enable a more inclusive culture around competitive ideas. So uh, this is uh, a question about the human nature in general. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, if you look at some of the seminal papers in robotics, some of those seminal papers were ideas that um, were kind of contrary. I mean, Rodney Brooks gave an example of the when he was thinking about subsumption architecture and all that, and, and someone, an editor, I think, was like, oh, uh, I think we're going to publish this, even though the reviewer said, we have no idea what this is about. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I mean, this is there's an, uh, another example where an uh, HRI, um, I believe it was Terry Fong, had a, a paper that was like not published, but it was like one of the most highly cited papers in HRI for years because he just put it online. It's like, yeah, I didn't get accepted, but you know, I believe in this stuff. Mm-hmm. And and so I think this is a hard thing because traditionally we think things work because we've seen it working before. And we don't necessarily believe other things are important or other things work because we haven't seen it before. Um, mm-hmm. I, and I, I just what I say is, is it's more it's more important that the leaders in the field be a little more open and really think about when they're making a decision on something. Is it because it's counter to what they believe or is it that it's really bad science? Right. And those are two different things. Mm-hmm. I think I can't agree more, but I think that's really an issue because it's like a gatekeeper for a certain field uh, or certain subfield. And, and I think it's complicated because it comes to funding to certain projects that work well. And you are afraid to, cut, to get, come to your, out of your comfort zone to new topics. So I don't know how this can be regulated, how you can make sure there is maybe a quality in, in these ideas that could fund it as well. Yeah, I, I don't, um, so the only example that I could think of is, um, so in the United States, we have um, something, National Science Foundation, and what they have and what they fund are uh, these engineering research centers um, and, and science technology centers. And one of the things that they look at is making sure you have an interdisciplinary team and when i say interdisciplinary it's not you know the you know you have a mechanical engineer and an electrical engineer and that's interdisciplinary but truly interdisciplinary teams where you're talking about science and humanities and engineering that are solving hard problems and a lot of those ERCs are very successful in terms of inventing new ways of doing things um so it does work but it requires an investment mm-hmm. Yeah. So if I ask you, what do you think the biggest discrepancy between engineering problems present in autonomous robotics companies versus academia? What do you think is a gap or maybe discrepancies that we have to fill? Um, so I, so I, so I want to say that the gap today is not the same gap as it was in the past. Mm-hmm. And it's only because a lot of the companies that Uh, were much more application focused, a lot of them now have research arms. And so they're closing the gap by bringing things in-house, which is actually, in some cases, um, it impacts academics, and we can have a whole conversation about that. Um, and so the, the typical gap used to be that academics uh, were, you know, they were going in terms of the theory, they may have done something in the applied space, But these, even the applications, you're not impacting a million users, and so you don't have the data to really create a robust enough system. Uh, whereas in industry, they would look at the academic research and be like, yeah, we can't use that because you know it doesn't actually uh, run in real time, or oh yeah, we like this, but it requires too much memory. And so they would design their own solutions that would work, but maybe they weren't revolutionary. 
Um, that gap is starting to be filled because a lot of companies have their own research arms and the research is directly, are much more tied to their products mm-hmm. versus not tied to their products. Um, what I worry though is that we're losing the ability in some cases to do fundamental research. That's what I worry about the most. Mm-hmm. And do you think that the current technology, for example, artificial intelligence, that startup or maybe universities can build application that can be scaled without having the resource of Google or Amazon or Facebook? Yeah, that, I, I worry about that. Mm-hmm. I, I do worry about, because again, the AI is not a solved problem. Uh, there are some areas that are you know, solved enough that people can use them. But the whole field of AI, there's still some very difficult problems, especially in learning and adaptation and things like that. But as an academic, the question then becomes, can you work on these fundamental problems Mm -hmm. of a a new technology, which some would say, oh, but that's incremental, even though if that academic could work on it for five years, it would be revolutionary. It's a lot harder to do, especially since academics are now competing with Uh, the ones that are from the research in terms of publications and NeurIPS and and things like that. Um, I do worry about the field. I I worry about it immensely because of that. I think you, you, you say about um, democratizing. I think I, I don't know this is something have have to university to deal with these resources or how we can find an action for towards democratizing the data and having decentralized data for our research. Well, some of it has to do with ensuring we have what I would call industry, government, academic alliances, much more than we do, mm-hmm. right? Because uh, data can be collected. I will say, you know, Google can collect an immense amount of data, but it's proprietary. And um, so how can you take that data and share it with others because then, of course, you might lose your competitive advantage. And yet, when you share with academics and then even sharing with government, that's going to be, you know, some individuals be like, no, 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 you don't want to share with government. And so Mm -hmm. it's not a solved problem. It's a hard problem. I don't have a solution for it. Um, The only thing that I've seen that's been that looks like it's successful is when nonprofits do. So Mozilla, for example, had an effort of collecting voice data. Um, and so when nonprofits become part of the equation, it becomes a little bit more digestible for individuals um, and you now have access, but the corpus of data is still not at the level of um, a major corporate entity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if I ask you how we can ensure the develop robotics in the lab for four or five years is going to be beneficial to humanity as old, do you think Novelty is more important than usefulness, or usefulness application is much more important than novelty. How do you envision this process in, as a your lab? So I actually think it's both are important, mm-hmm. right? So I think um, as if you're an applied researcher, then usage is really important. But if you are um, much more in the theoretical field, Um, I think novelty is much more important, but I I would argue though that um, we need to basically claim that Um, as a, so I'm an applied researcher, but I look at the theory um, to try to understand what it is I can take from it. I also think that it should flip that as a theoretician, looking at applied research and, and, and saying, oh, this is how my theory could possibly apply. I, I don't think we have 
as much interaction as we should between the two different camps. Um, I think that puts our field at a disservice, honestly. Um, but I think we, we need both because we still need to move the needle, especially with respect to um, robotics as a physical embodiment of AI. Mm-hmm. I would like to ask you about human-robot interaction. How we would see that maybe perfect, uh, safe human-robot interaction scenario in the future? How you would envision that? Yeah, so um, if you think about human-robot interaction or HRI, uh, there's the contact base and there there's the non-contact base. Mm-hmm. Um, so the contact base in terms of safety, there's a lot of research of how do you approach a human, how do you um, navigate around them, how do you, like if I'm in a hallway, for example. Um, and so there is some nice work that's done with, oh, I can model the trajectory of the person and their speed, and so I'll move to the side and go around them and things like that. Or um, I working with a individual, if, a, if someone's designing a rehab robot, um, I close a space for sample, for example, feeding, but uh, the human then has some autonomy to close uh, the last little gap. Um, so there's a lot of physical safety constraints. Uh, mm-hmm. That is uh, some good work in that. For non-contact, um, it deals a lot more with the um, trust. It deals with the emotional, and it deals with the behavior space. Um, and the safety in that regard uh, comes because as roboticists, we can change behavior of people And so the safety has to really think about how do you change behavior, but still allow autonomy of the decision-making process of the person. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's still, I, I would say, an open-ended problem, uh, just in general. But that's how I think about safety in non-contact-based mm-hmm. um, HRI. Yeah. And for consciousness as well, and motion do you think that's still challenging or to which level we really understand how we can replicate emotion and robotics and maybe as well consciousness as well do you think it's yeah. challenging so emotion and, and i will there's there's one there's a debate on emotion uh mm-hmm. at least in terms of recognition because we're actually not recognize, recognizing inner state where we're correlating outward appearance to an inner state so it's not a direct correlation but it's what we do And so if you think about robots, there's the understanding the emotional state of a human. And then on the robot side, it's can you also emote in an equivalent manner, right? So it's it's basically what we do as people. If someone laughs, you laugh with them, even if you don't think the joke is funny. I mean, we do this. Um, and so the reason, so that one of the questions is why would you do that? Well, one of the questions is that it links to this aspect of trust. It also links to an aspect of compliance. For example, if you have a robot in, say, a healthcare space or a therapy space, there's been research that shows when a human uh, trusts, even if it's trusting another human, um, trusts them with respect to their healthcare objectives, with respect to their the information that they're providing, their healthcare outcomes is actually higher. And so they've done some studies about why this is the case and how neurons fire in the brain and that, 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 that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if I think about robots in certain spaces, they should understand our emotional state and they should emote equivalently because it, it helps us in certain domains, but not in all domains. Um, and so the question then becomes, 
do we as roboticists decide to create robots that emote in order to increase trust, increase behavior change if it's detrimental to the person. Um, and there's some ethical research that's being done in that space, but there is no yes or no answer to it um, mm -hmm. because we're not at that point of it being 100% accurate, but we're kind of close to to being able to influence people because of understanding their emotions and modeling their emotions, uh, primarily in the non-embodied AI space. Mm -hmm. And do you think that any decision has a significant impact should be or mustn't delegated to a robot or intelligent machine? Do you agree with that or not? I, I so fundamentally I don't, mm -hmm. but in today's age I do. Right. And so, um, because the problem is, we have not put in the scaffolds and we have not put in the requirements in robots such that they are making ethical decisions, right? So that is not part of their programming, that's not part of their learning. And so, it means that the decisions the robot is making may not necessarily, it might be the most optimal, but it may not be the most fair, it may not be the most equitable. And so until we get to that point, um, I at least think that um, a human who's in control should be part of the equation in some form or fashion, mm -hmm. because we don't know who's programming the robots. We don't know the value system that's in that robot. We don't know what parameters were being trained in that robotic system. And because we don't know that, I honestly at least would trust the human because I at least can look at their background and know, you know, what their value system is. Yeah. Whereas with the robot, I don't. Yeah. So if I ask you what is the most impressive robot you have ever seen in your um, experience in the academic field or maybe industry, if you witnessed any? I, I will still claim it's the the Mars rovers. Um, mm -hmm. And why I say that is the intelligence, of course, is not the equivalent to some of the AI systems we have here. But think about this. You put a robot, like, so you it's not like if, if the robot breaks, you can go and fix it, right? So you have a robot and you designed a robot and you designed a software um, that's so capable and so robust that it can go to an entirely different planet and still survive and still last for, oh, I don't remember now, four or five years, mm -hmm. right? Like, what can't, you, you can't say that about a lot of systems, even the ones that are on Earth, right? Like a human still has to go and, and put oil in the, in the gears. Um, so I still think that that's the most capable just because of it design and they're just, NASA being able to design a rover mm -hmm. that highly capable but with so much uncertainty and it still works. That's impressive, yeah. So uh, we are closer to the end so for a few questions. Uh, can capitalism and socialism be integrated while making sure that advanced robotics is not going to lead to social inequality? Um, I so I'm an optimist. Mm -hmm. I actually believe in the good of people. Um, even when uh, the world says no, I still believe in the good of people. And so I think when we 
think through it when we come together as a community, as a robotics community, and make the choice to ensure that robots are designed for good, I think that they can level the playing field. I think that they can provide equitable outcomes and be used for good. Um, I, I believe that. I fundamentally believe that. But it's because I fundamentally believe in people. Yeah. And do you think for that as well, do you think it is like more obligation for students, if we speak about graduate students who are going to be future leaders in our field, do you think it's a more obligation or something we have to ingrain in our curriculum as well, or maybe the lab you join? How we can make sure this they directed to the right thing? I, no, I, I think that um, as academics, some element of responsible computing, responsible robotics, responsible engineering should be part of the curriculum. Um, I, I teach an ethical AI class. I have 250 students this semester. Why? Because I think it's important. Um, and I, I, I choose to do that because I think that when you look at all of the issues we might have with technology being deployed and having bad outcomes, the fact is, is that it's designed by researchers that were trained. And I would say that they weren't trained in the, in the right way of thinking through the ethical implications of their work. And I think as academics, we have the ability to, from day zero, to work with students mm -hmm. in terms of when you're designing a software, thinking about the implications, thinking about the social impact, thinking about the pros and the cons, um, and just having them as, as part of their curriculum throughout the entire process from undergrad to grad, so that when you then become you know, a researcher that's well-paid and doing great work, that fundamentally, those considerations are part of how you do research. So it's not like, oh, mm -hmm. I did this. Oh, yeah, maybe I should be thinking about ethics. It's like, no, from day zero, as you're designing the solution, you're thinking about the implications. I, I think then we would have a lot less problems with our technology when it's deployed and in, in, out into the world. Yeah, I can't agree more with that, yeah. And do you think ego is important for the researcher? Do I think, repeat? Ego. EGO, ego, is important for the researcher? Oh. Um, so ego, that's an interesting word. Um, I think as roboticists, we mm -hmm. all kind of have ego after a while yeah. um, because we create things that like most of the rest of the world uh, does not, or in some cases cannot. Uh, which basically makes us feel like we are invincible in some cases. Um, but so the negative is that if we use that for ill, it's bad. But the positive is that uh, most roboticists, um, not necessarily all, but most of us will attack a problem that hasn't been solved before. And we just know we can solve it, right? Like that's just mm -hmm. fundamentally like, yeah, I know I can do this. Well, if you didn't have ego, you wouldn't have that mindset. And so we take risks, we can't take calculated risks in our in our research. I, I think that's the positive. Yeah, interesting. So what was the best advice was given to you as a person or professionally and was a life changing for you? Um, I would say that, and I won't say it was advice, mm -hmm. it was um, 
back in the day, uh, my my supervisor, this was at NASA, um, had given me an opportunity uh, to lead lead a team for something. And I remember I asked them, I was like, why me? You know, I'm like, mm-hmm. I was a fresh out. I was like, well, why me? And he said, why not? Um, mm-hmm. And so I, 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 even though it wasn't advice, um, I take that to even today, it's like something happens and it's like, well, why me? And I think, wait, why not me? Um, mm-hmm. And so I think that was the best advice. It changed my perspective of myself and my abilities and uh, basically gave me permission to take risks. That's interesting. And what do you think the most important quality you have gained through your experience uh, in the academic field? One trait you gained and you think- Perseverance. Oh, nice, I agree. That's great, yeah. Um, in the next 100 year, what the thing you wish humanity can do? Next 100 years? Yeah. What the thing you wish humanity uh, can do? Um, so next 100 years, uh, I actually wish that the whole robotics AI was a technology that people could look back and say, you know what, that's the one technology that leveled the playing field for society and made it more just and equal. Yeah, I agree. So finally, do you have any final words robotics community would like to say? Um, I'm actually so ecstatic to be a roboticist. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was one of these things when I started, and I've been doing this now for a while, you know, robotics was, you know, only not a whole lot of people were doing it, not at all. And now it's like one of the coolest fields ever. It's really fun being a roboticist. It's fun having been in this field and seeing it grow. It's like seeing how you know a child grows from a toddler to an adult and you're like there. It's not like you just suddenly appear. You were there the entire time. Um, and so I enjoy that. I love it. I love the field. But I also know that we can make it so much better. Yeah, I can't agree more with you. And I really enjoyed talking to you. And thanks so much for your effort and being advocate in our robotic field community. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you.